Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host, Nick Williams, and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. Alrighty, guys, before we jump into the report this week, we've got a really cool opportunity for you. We've partnered up with Aftco, and they're now offering all of our listeners a free sun protection mask with any purchase of Aftco products. Aftco makes a ton of great products for all types of anglers. All that you have to do to get your coupon code is to text ALFFR. Again, that's ALFFR for Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report to 779 345 2918. Again, just text ALFFR to 779 345 2918. Subscribe to our email list and we'll send you the promo code via email. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to another week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. Super excited about today's report. Uh, earlier in the year, uh, we kind of did a special, a New Year's special, talking about the Georgia black bass slam, sat down with Bryant Bowden and talked about all the different species of bass, 10 species and counting. And then we talked about that. We touched on it a little bit, talking about the different species of trout that are up there in the northeastern part of the state. So Bryant managed to to pass along my information and we managed to get an interview today. We're talking with Anthony Rayburn, uh, who is the Northeast Georgia Region Supervisor. Anthony, welcome to the show. Nick, thank you for having me. I look forward to talking with you today about the trout slam. Absolutely. Yeah, I know uh, I know our, our listeners can't see it, but we're here on the Zoom call and I'm looking at that that creek in the background you got right there. It looks a little fishy. What uh what creek is that? Uh, I can't tell you the name of that. It's one of our honey holes, you know. <laughs> That's kind of the way it goes in Georgia. You, you know, I don't believe I said is the answer to most go. of those questions. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I got a few creeks like that too. They don't have any names, and if they do, I'm I'm not telling you. So. Yeah, that's right. That's it. <laughs> Give us a little bit of your background information. Uh, tell us, sure. tell us first and foremost, what kind of fishing do you like to do up there? Yeah, I'm kind of a pond fishing guy. I grew up fishing ponds in the neck of the woods that I grew up in. I'm I'm not far from where I grew up, and grew up fishing farm ponds and. And, you know, some had good bass populations, some had good brim populations, and it always intrigued me as to what went into making a good fishing pond. And that's how I got interested in in fisheries and pursued that as a degree and then as a career. And I feel blessed of the Lord that I can have a career in that kind of work, and I really enjoy it. Absolutely. Uh, we, we have on the show, uh, they're a sponsor, uh, Norm Latona over with Southeastern Pond Management, and he is the man when it comes to explaining what goes into building a pond, keeping the oxygen content right, balancing your forage species with your bass and, and giving them good habitat. I mean, he's a wealth of knowledge and, uh, yeah, that's how I got my start. I think a lot of guys got their start fishing the neighborhood duck pond or granddaddy's yep. bass pond. And I've, I've fished a lot. I've gone offshore. I've fished mountain streams, big rivers, everything but but a pond right there in the evening when the bugs start to come out and the frogs start croaking you give me a top water lure on that pond and i'm happy there you go there you go i'm the same way i fished in alaska and fish reservoirs for stripers and and bass but i really like just going down down the road a piece and fishing my my local farm pond with my sons and grandsons so that's it i'm excited i got my daughter and and then i got i got two uh I got a niece and a nephew all got added within the last year. So I got some little people here in the next couple of years. I'm looking forward to taking out there and putting on the pond. So That's right. Well, well talk to me a little bit just in, in broad terms. Uh, what is the Georgia Trout Slam? Well, the Georgia Trout Slam is, is really patterned after, after the Bass Slam that y'all have already talked about on your show. Uh, we launched it last year, but, uh, you know, it, it's just a program to increase awareness of trout fishing in Georgia. And what I found out, Nick, is that people love a challenge. You know, they just really step up to the plate, 
when there's a challenge thrown out at them. And we've just been shocked at the response. It's been overwhelming. Number of folks that I talk to call into the office, uh, the number of applications we've gotten for the trout slam, people love a challenge. And and we've gotten people come uh, from seven different states outside of Georgia, as far as Texas and Michigan and Minnesota uh, that have applied and received the trout slam. And I think our recent headcount is around 300 folks. We just launched this thing last spring and we're already, you know, approaching 300 uh, submissions and applications. So I'll tell you, we are just uh, blown away at the response and, and people love it. And so, you know, it's getting them out in the woods, getting them out, exploring the mountains and finding some new places and trying some different types of fishing that they may not have tried before. You know, we have a lot of uh, uh, what we call the truck followers and corn dunkers that fish for stock trout. But uh, some of these things uh, like brook trout and brown, not necessarily are as easy to catch as a freshly stocked rainbow. And so we're seeing people step up to the challenge uh, and have really uh, embraced it and um, excited about that. That sounds like really good participation for your first year. You said 300 people from seven different states. <laughs> Can is you that, believe it? And now, is that is that people who, who just participated or is that people who completed the slam and caught all three species? I think uh, at the end of the year, we had two, 290 who, who were actually completed the slam. And we have a lot more that, you know, caught two fish yeah. and didn't quite complete it, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so there's a lot more of that we don't have in our head count. But um, i tell you what, people have gone nuts over this challenge. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens this coming year. It, it's a lot of fun. I'd never really done the, the species challenge before any of the slams. And, and Dr. Matt Lewis, he got me into it talking about red-eye bass. And it's a it's definitely a different challenge. There's a lot of ways you can challenge yourself as an outdoorsman. Like I'm a deer hunter and you try to shoot the biggest deer. Or if you're a duck hunter, you know, you try to shoot more ducks than the guy standing next to you. And, yeah, uh, you know, fishing, you always, I think most guys go to say, well, I'm going to catch the biggest fish or the most fish. But then catching, you know, hopping in the car and driving all across the Mobile Basin and fishing four different rivers for four different species of bass and just, just seeing all the different habitats was amazing to me. And and all of the little incidental bycatch species that you catch, like I'd never been up there in that part of the world where you could get into like red breast sunfish and stuff like yeah. that. We don't have those on the coast. So, and and you were seeing like red horse suckers and, and fish that I still don't, I don't know what they were, but you were catching <laughs> them or seeing them and, and just seeing that wide variety of habitat uh, really gives you an appreciation. And it, and it is, it's a good challenge to kind of pitch yourself against to grab a buddy and hop in the truck and say, all right, we, you know, let's see what we can do before it gets dark today. See if we can go knock out a couple. Exactly. So our application process requires folks to take a picture and submit the picture what I like to see is we get a lot of a lot of families are involved. You know, father, son. Uh, one of the one of the folks had grandfather, father, and son. So we had three generations, and their applications came in back to back, and it was really cool uh, to see that kind of uh, family family challenge to to get out there and see if we can go as a group and catch all three trout species in Georgia. So it's been fun to see that um, that happen in the state. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, me and my uncle, we did did it last year. We knocked out two species together, and it, it involved you know five or six hours of riding in a truck, catching up, getting some some good time, catching up with your family. I like it. You know, it's it's definitely that type of fishing is really social, and it's uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty relaxed. You know, we we had yeah. a good time doing it. So. What made y'all start the Trout Slam? Was it was it just to kind of spread awareness? Was it just to offer something fun to anglers? Is there kind of a citizen science research program behind it? What what drives it? That's a good question, Nick. I, I, you know, I don't really think there's one thing that drove it. We saw the Bass Slam and, you know, the interest that uh, developed from the Bass Slam. And then this thing kind of got birthed out of the heels of COVID. And, uh, you know, the states around us closed down, but Georgia stayed open. And I tell you what, our state parks and our mountains, uh, national parks, all that uh, just had huge, you know, use. And so we wanted to direct them to uh, explore trout fishing, explore the mountains uh, and try these uh, challenges with with the different trout species, because each one's a little different in how you approach it. And um, and so, you know, 
a couple of those things contributed, I guess, to the birth of the trout slam. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I, I guess like moving into it and like looking at it, can you give us kind of the the skinny in broad terms about the three different species? Like you mentioned, there was a difference between fishing for, you know, stocker, rainbow stock trouts. Right. Versus your browns and your brooks. What's what's kind of the rundown on each of those species? Yeah, well, well a lot of it kind of hinges on our on our stocking program. So we have there are four trout hatcheries in the state, and we coordinate our efforts together uh, through through one individual. And this was the perfect year to launch the trout slam because we had rainbows, we had browns, and we had brooks in our hatchery system. So a lot of what we saw were hatchery origin. You know, we we put them in the water, so they were fairly easy to catch. But, uh, you know, this coming year is going to be different because we're not overly abundant in brown trout, and we have no brook trout in our system. So folks are really going to have to make a dil- more diligent effort to find brooks especially, but also browns. But, you know, the rainbows are relatively easy to find and catch We we publish our stocking list every week, and people can go onto our website and find out where we're stocking rainbows. So, you know, that's that's the easiest part of the challenge. Browns typically occur lower down in trout waters, whereas rainbows may be on on the slope of the mountain. Browns tend to be on the lower the lower gradient side of of the streams. Whereas brooks are on top of the mountain, I mean, we got to go up to above 2,000 feet, really closer to 3,000 feet in elevation, get up on the tops of the mountains where the water's flat and uh, sort of new, uh, coming out of, the, out of the ground, and that's where you find your brook trout. So it's so it's really different as to where you have to go to look for the three different species. Bait-wise, it's it's really all going to be about the same. It's matching the hatch, uh, you know, knowing your bugs, trying to trying to get a, you know, a flower lure in there that looks like what what they're eating, and getting in the right location. A lot of our trout, uh, our streams aren't really big for the most part, but uh, you know they're usually in the deeper water and hugging the bottom or behind a a boulder or a log or tucked under the bank. So it's it's really about knowing the knowing the locations where those three species occur and then how to target those based on what's hatching um, for that month. Now, you mentioned the brook trout were kind of a high elevation species. Um, we've had in the past, I know uh, uh, the director of the Native Fish Coalition, uh, Bob Mallard, I think he's he's written a couple books on brook trout in particular. He's up from Maine where they're really, brook trout's yeah. a big, big thing up there. You know, that's down here, I guess, like our, is is a largemouth bass? I think I think that's the Alabama state fish. I may be wrong, but uh, yeah, it is in Georgia too. Yeah, I know. I know we're hardcore bass guys, and and he said they feel the same way up there. There's some kind of uh, patriotic zeal around that species, and and he got me fired up about them, and I was excited to learn that you know their southern range extended down into North Georgia. Yeah. Um, and and I know there's been some different conservation issues that brook trout have faced. How how do y'all feel like y'all's population is doing up there as far as your wild brook trout or, or brook char? I know some guys are yeah. big on that, that they're not real trout, they're char. We we are on this, the very southern end of the range for brook trout in North America. So, you know, we're part of this coalition of researchers that really focus on brook trout uh, all the way from Georgia up to Maine and, and into Canada. So we're part of that. And we share data and, you know, do a lot of genetics work uh, with that uh, with that coalition. But, you know, brook trout in Georgia, because it's warmer than Maine and, and every other state north of us, don't live long. Uh, they, they typically grow fast, but don't live very long. So brook trout, you know, you get a three or four year old brook trout and that's a big deal. That's, a, that's an old timer. They typically are going to be eight inches or less. Uh, the biggest I've seen in my sampling in terms of wild trout, uh, wild brook trout's 13 inches. So uh, not really big compared to our, our northern neighbors. But, you know, because they're so short-lived, fish species that are short-lived, their populations are either boom or bust. And, uh, you know, in the good years when the environment is, everything's clicking just perfect, man, that's a great year. You get a boom, you get a strong year class, and it'll carry carry the fishery for two or three years. You get some 
some difficult environmental conditions and you have a bust. And, and really what, what we found in our research is that in Georgia, brook trout spawn tail end of August into November. Uh, if you get a heavy rainfall, November, December, maybe even into January, it'll just flush the eggs right out of their reds, which is a, a gravel bed uh, in the stream bottom. Uh, so it just flushes those eggs out, and, and we have poor year classes as a result. All it takes is one big rainfall and washes them out. We'll lose a year class, you know, in that watershed, if not that whole river basin. In the summertime, our problems are drought. You know, we had a moderate drought late this summer, this past summer, and, you know, it condenses all the fish into small pools, and now they're competing for a limited amount of forage and you know brook trout are pretty aggressive they'll eat their young and uh, so we can have some uh, poor year classes as a result of drought so uh, those are two big things right now the population overall if you look across the mountains probably about average no floods didn't really happen this year we had a little bit of drought but it it didn't linger for we've seen them last as much as two or three years we didn't have that. So I, I think we're going to be about average. So, you know, folks can get out there and have a decent chance catching a wild brook trout, I think, this this coming year. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm definitely, I was doing, I was at the Atlanta Fly Show, I guess that was last weekend, and I did yeah. a, a little bit of scouting. I didn't really have time to fish seriously, and it was uh, it's pretty cold up there this time of the year, getting up in that water. <laughs> that, that water was brisk compared to what it, it is yeah. here on the Gulf Coast. But uh, It was cold last week for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, but I I was looking and, and getting ready and I'm really fired up this spring to get up there and, and try to chase all the species of trout and the red eyes and everything. But brook trout will be a brand new experience to me. And uh, they they live in some absolutely gorgeous waters. It, it looks that's like, right. Yeah, it looks like an awesome, awesome thing to go do. And we're going to take a quick break. Y'all take a minute to check out some of the businesses that keep this show free for you. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Mobile Boat Show. The Mobile Boat Show opens February 23rd with hundreds of new boat models and brands all in one place for easy comparison shopping at the Mobile Convention Center. It's the largest indoor show on the Gulf Coast, offering the best prices and selection of 2024 boats, accessories, tackle, and more. Come see Twiggy the Skiing Squirrel, hear tips from the pros, catch fish in the trout pond, and explore in the touch tanks. The Mobile Boat Show is the place to find all you need to get out on the water. Come check it out February 23rd through the 25th at the Mobile Convention Center. Also brought to you by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The days of heading out and blindly looking for good fishing areas are pretty much over. Don't waste time and money on fuel searching for fish. You need the recent highest resolution images to not only know where to go, but where not to go. The knowledge provided by today's technology is critical when planning an offshore fishing trip. Make the choice that professional captains all over the Gulf make and choose Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The easy-to-use interface and excellent customer service will have you on the fish every time you go. Check it out at hiltonsoffshore.com. Anthony, you talked about it a little bit briefly that there were... You know, you had your brown trout at your lower gradients and the, the rainbow trout further up and then all the way up in the high gradient streams, you had your your brook trout. I know that you mentioned, you know, burning a stream is, is a very real thing, but are there any general locations where, you know, if you had 300 people submitting last year, are there kind of hot spots in the state, like just broadly speaking, where people can go to, to get on those species. Like I know Matt, he didn't want to name streams, but right, he right. was like, look, you know, like Talladega National Forest. Like if you want to catch Coosa Bass, Talladega National Forest. That's right, all I'll say. Right. Like you can hit that right. and you'll you'll find them. Find a stream, start fishing, you'll find them eventually. Right. No, I mean, I think there's some places I feel comfortable directing folks to. I mean, we, we publish our trout stocking list. So, I mean, that's the way. If you want to catch rainbows, man, just call up our trout. Or, or go to our website, uh, which is, I guess I ought to mention that, georgiawildlife.com, and go to the trout fishing page. And everything you want to know about trout fishing in Georgia is on that on that website. So it's georgiawildlife.com. There's a, up at the top, there's a, a link that says fishing. Click on that, go to trout fishing. And everything that I'm telling you here pretty much is on that website. So uh, you can you can find our trout stocking list, what we stocked this week. Uh, so, 
you know, find that and you'll, you'll get on the rainbows. We will stock, uh, you know, close to a million fish this coming year. And a good chunk of those are going to be rainbows. Um, so they're easy to find. Uh, the brown trout's a little bit harder to find. You know, one of our best brown trout fisheries is actually below one of our biggest lakes in the state. So it's a tailwater fishery and that's below Lake Lanier. You know, Lake Lanier is known for uh, it's striped bass and it's spotted bass and largemouth bass, but water coming out of Lake Lanier is cold <laughs> and it stays cold all year round. So good grief, there's over 20 miles of trout waters downstream of, of Buford Dam, including our trout, one of our trout hatcheries. So there, there's a self-sustaining brown trout population in that river. Um, so they, they, we don't stock them. They're there. And, uh, and people really enjoy fishing for those. Uh, they're guides that service that fishery, and uh, and they're certainly willing to take folks out. But uh, those brown trout can get really big. I mean, fish up in the teens is not not out of the question uh, in the Lanier tailwater. So that's the Chattahoochee River comes out of Buford Dam, and that's a good place to find brown trout. And, and they're going to be they're going to be natural. I mean, they're going to be wild fish, not nothing we stock. Brook trout. You know, if you go to that web page that I linked, uh, that I referenced, and, and just there's an interactive map on that uh, web page, and it'll show you. There's a legend on there that shows you what streams are stocked. But if you kind of, kind of just uh, use your imagination and draw a line down the spine of the Appalachian Mountains that run all the way from the northeast corner down to about uh, Dahlonega or so in Lumpkin County. And just look at the streams that come off that, that ridge, the spine of the Appalachians. Those are your brook trout waters. So you've got to get up high in elevation, you know, generally above 2,800 feet, and find those tributaries that drain off either side of the spine of the Appalachian Mountains. And, and that's typically where most of our brook trout streams are located. You know, if I had to pick one county where to go, that'd be Raven County in the very northeast corner of the state, it borders North Carolina and South Carolina, uh, and there's a bunch of brook trout streams up there. So uh, that'd be my, my my recommendation. They're not they're not hard to find. It's all in the national forest. So uh, just get you a good map, and we have one on that web page. And I I think you can find some good some good wild brook trout uh, fishing opportunities. Cir circling back, so I know I was actually, I was up around Lake Lanier, but I never, I don't think I saw the Buford Dam tailwaters, and it, and it seemed like right now, you know, like you said, we had a drought, but it seems like we picked up some winter rain. I noticed that the hooch, when I come over, it was pretty high, pretty muddy looking, so I, I didn't even check it out, but uh, is that usually, or there's tailwater something where you can wade fish it, or do you need to organize a float, or how do people usually fish that fishery? Uh, Kind of on the upper end, most folks are wading. I mean, uh, if you find our fish hatchery, Buford Trout Hatchery, uh, there's a path to the river, and and those folks are wading. Uh, it's not far from the dam. In fact, you can move right up to the dam just about, just require you to wear a life jacket, because if they flip on the water, we don't want you getting washed downstream. So, sure. yep, so, uh, you know, that's, we stock that area really heavily, and this year will be mostly rainbows, but there'll be some browns mixed in. So, yeah, you can wade that. Once you get further down, the river gets bigger and deeper. Uh, I think your guides are picking up in there and, and doing float trips um, uh, downstream of, say, Highway 20 Bridge, something like that. You you mentioned you kind of touched on on the fishing waders, um, and we had on, on a previous show, we talked with the folks there in Gadsden, Alabama, that do the rainbow trout fishery, and that's a delayed harvest, kind of a small fishery with some some – regulations that people may not be used to, you know, barbless hooks only and right. restrictions on what kind of, uh, you know, like, I don't think you can have, I think you can do a double nymph rig, but I don't think they want you doing like, like lots of hooks and stuff like that. Right, um, right. Or is there anything that anglers need to be aware of that you need to have or, or rules that trip people up aside from just having a Georgia fishing license? As far as delayed fisheries and stuff like that, do y'all have a, an additional trout stamp that y'all sell? We do. We have. So folks would need to buy the, the fishing license, but there is a trout stamp that goes along with that. It's uh, not much for that. So, yep, the fishing license trout stamp. And most of our streams just fall under general regulations. Uh, you know, you fish with one pole. Every person has their own stringer. There's no restrictions on, you know, 
artificials or live bait can't use live live minnows for example but outside of that pretty much anything goes and, and that's really it we do have some a few special regulation streams that um there might be a size limit or we have four delayed harvest streams like alabama does north carolina has a bunch of them and i think our regulations are very similar among those states uh, so we do have that and that's that's active right now for four of our streams but uh but most of our streams are, you know, general regulation and folks are certainly allowed to fish them and harvest what they catch. I'll say this. I'm, I'm asking you these questions because we're, we're talking with listeners and they can't, you know, see it. They don't have the familiarity. I can say that I've looked on y'all's website and everything's laid out pretty clean, uh, particularly like your maps for your different bass species and trout and stuff like that. Um, it's a very easy thing to do like i went online and got my license got my trout stamp and everything and i think it cost me for a year it was only 80 dollars to get a freshwater license and the trout stamp and and the hard card and everything so not an expensive thing to do pretty well laid out y'all have like the different home ranges of all the the fish laid out really well so it it really makes it easy for guys who are looking to kind of plan a a do-it-yourself adventure and and you can do something either just for a weekend a day trip or i've got enough stuff planned i could probably go up there and stay for a week and uh yeah. and take a pull behind trailer or something and, and just make a whole spring vacation out of it yeah absolutely and you're out of state so that license is a little bit higher for out-of-state folks uh, it's really uh inexpensive for in-state folks and you know our trout streams are mainly in the national forest the chattahoochee national forest there's camping opportunities or state parks galore all through the north georgia mountains there's plenty of places to stay and and get out and explore where you can just get away and pretty much, you know, have the woods and the water to yourself. So it's a, it's an awesome place to be. What what would be, I know I've driven through a little bit of the Chattahoochee National Forest, actually coming home from a vacation up in North Carolina. We come home and took the scenic route through the Chattahoochee and it was just beautiful. I know like I'm familiar with like Northwest Alabama and kind of like the crown jewels of that region you have like the Soto State Park, you have Mount Chiahal. In in your region, what would you consider like the the can't miss attraction up there? Is there a particular park or an area in the national forest you think people need to be sure to check out? You know, every every park is different, has unique features. Kind of one of the things that my family and I have really enjoyed over the last few years is uh, just exploring waterfalls. And a lot of these state parks have waterfalls. There's Unicoi State Park. And there's and they've got a waterfall. There's Amicalola Falls State Park. They got a waterfall. So a lot of these places, you know, not only have scenic vistas of the mountains and the valleys, but they had those waterfalls. And, and that seems to be a huge attraction because they all have trails are easy to access uh, and they're just fun getaways. So, yeah, those would be two that just come to mind. But I'm sure there's more of them. Sure. That's something I have sitting on my bookshelf is you, it, it was actually on our honeymoon, me and my wife, we got married and we went up to the northeast part of, of uh, Alabama and we picked up a map that was the waterfalls of North Georgia. And, yeah. and we managed to usually we managed to tick off a couple every year. And that's that's actually what got me into fly fishing and looking at trout was just being up there. She likes to just go see the waterfall and see the yeah. sights have a picnic and everything and then you're just sitting there on the side of the stream and you're like man like the the itch starts to hit you a little bit and you're like man i wonder if there's any fish in this little stream right here yeah you start looking in so, them pools putting on your polarized glasses and trying to shade your yeah. eyes and you're trying to look so, down there in the bottom so my hole. little my little trick is when i when i get that itch i'm you know doing the waterfall hike and you know, i'm wondering i just i just break me off a little twig and toss it in there and if there's a brook trout in there, he's going to come after it. So <laughs> I can it. at least satisfy the itch a little bit to know I fooled one to come That's out. It. That's <laughs> it. That sounds like a good time. Well, well, we've we've talked a little bit about, about the fishery in broad terms. We've talked about kind of the purpose of it. Talked about the different species and the different waterways. I, just in broad terms, like if, if people are going up there, and kind of packing their bags. What what type of gear would you recommend if somebody was going to go try to do the trout slam? Yeah, um, conventional fly rod, whatever. Like, what would be your general recommendations? What's that fishing look like? You know, by and large, for most folks, you know, what I see when I'm out in the woods and and encountering trout anglers, most of them it's ultralight spinning tackle. I mean, these fish are small. 
you know, there, there's not a huge fight involved, but it's fun to trick them. You know, that's the whole bit. But uh, ultralight spinning tackle is the way to go, I think, for, you know, the majority of the anglers. Um, you know, it's hard to beat a number two MEP spinner, you know, with gold brown color. I mean, it's just hard to beat that. And I see a lot of folks just casting that toward the pools and, and having good success. So it, that'd be my general recommendation. I mean, we have we have the the elite guys who like to fly fish on the bigger streams. You know, a lot of these streams are really small and and they're rhododendron thickets that sort of shroud them. So that's why I kind of like the spinning gear. But if you can get out on some of the bigger water, you know, it's certainly fun to to fling flies. You know, to me, when I've done it, it's more about the art of presentation. Uh, you never get bored when you're fly fishing because you're always looking for that perfect cast. Uh, but yeah, bigger waters, uh, and there's there's some that you can do that on. But you know, still it's kind of ultra light tackle, uh, something you can cast pretty well this time of year. You know, our fly flingers are are fishing deep, trout are deep in the in the deeper pools, or you know, ninety five percent of the year, fish are on the bottom or close to it, and uh, and so I swear to you know, folks don't like to to tie on a little bit of split shot because they get hung up, but uh, right. You know, there are times when they're they're rising to to the recent fly hatch, but you know, most of the time they're on bottom. So you know, anything you can get on the bottom is, is going to tip the odds in your favor. So it'd be for fly fishermen something something in there like a double nymph rig or something like that, something heavy exactly. to get on down there and kind of tick that bottom. Be that's good, exactly good right. I think that's a good bet any time of year. Or is is there any particular fly hatch that that people look for up there? A particular time of the year, or a particular species, or anything like that? That's a great question. It varies uh, from month to month, and and uh, one of our Trout Unlimited chapters has put together a, a fairly good uh, reference guide, and they'll they'll actually put it in their newsletter. What's what's going to hatch this month, and the right kind of flies to match the hatch. And I'll just give them a shout out. I mean, it's a, it's worthy to to look at that. And that's um, I think it's Rabun, R A B U N Rabun T U, dot org. And if you'll go to their newsletter, it's called Tight Lines, and then just search month by month, and they'll have you scroll all the way down to the bottom, and and they have a chart called Match the Hatch, and and that is a very good uh, guidebook to tell you what's hatching this month. And here's the here's the lures that match it. So that's my go-to guide when uh, when I try to help folks out. Yeah, yeah. That we have uh, we've got some pretty good little communities in here. You got in Alabama. You got East Alabama fly fishing. Uh, you got Stephen Rockhart's over on on the uh, the Cahaba. He's he's a real popular guide. He helps a lot of people out. You've got up in Gadsden. You got the Rainbow City Fly Club. So a lot of a lot of times, I know those local outfitters or guides are your best info or your local Trout Unlimited, Native Fish Coalition, whatever it is. What what about as far as like your guides and outfitters out there? If there's folks who want to do that, I know I I tried several times to go figure out the trout we have in the tailwaters of Smith Lake, and I I tried three times and spent three half days of fishing and caught zero fish and finally was like, all right, I'm just going to call Brandon and, and schedule yeah. a weekend. Uh, Cause this is getting embarrassing at this point to host a fishing podcast and can't, right. can't catch these fish here. Uh, or is there anybody you recommend? Well, there's, you know, I, if I start recommending them, I'll make somebody mad cause sure. I, I won't, I won't get them all, but you know, there's some big ones. Uh, you know, there's one that, that God's, almost exclusively on the Lanier tailwater. So Chattahoochee River downstream of Lake Lanier. His name is Chris Scally. Um, river runs through it. I think it's the name of his guide service. There's one in Helen, the city of Helen. It's kind of, kind of the, the eastern hub for trout fishing on the eastern side of the mountains. Uh, so that's Unicoi Outfitters. And then kind of on the western side, uh, there's two or three over there, but uh, the Cahutta Fly Shop excuse me, Cut a Fly Company is, is one over there. There's several over there in Fannin County. So they can hook you up. There's Nantula Creek Farms, uh, out, outstanding place. Uh, so there's they have guide services. There's also a number of, of rivers in Georgia that offer private excursions onto the river. So we have the Tacoa River. People are fishing the Tacoa River. They, they own section of, of river and they have guide services for 
for that section of a river. Uh, the one nearest to me is the Sequoia River. And, boy, it's, it's got trophy fish all down through it. I mean, there's about 10 miles of, of, of private fee fishing operations along that. So, so with that, you get a guide, and there's some huge fish in the Sequoia River. So, uh, yeah, so, so those are the ones that come to mind. I got you. Yeah, we. I was actually talking with some of the guys at Unicoi uh, at the fly fishing show last weekend, and super, super knowledgeable, helpful. Oh nice, yeah, nice people. I'd love to have them on the show at some point and, and talk about what they do. And and uh, I think some of the folks from Nantula were there too. Yeah. Um, you you touched on this. You touched on the 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 private waters, and I know. I mean, there's a guys who haven't seen it before there's a bunch of land up there in the appalachians that's publicly owned uh part of that chattahoochee national forest so there's there's no shortage of 100 percent safe public access water what do y'all's water access laws look like in georgia i know here in alabama and you can hear different things from different people but talking with like core engineers and talking with our game wardens down here generally if you're floating you're in the clear you know if you can put in at public access take out at public access as long as you're floating through in your boat you're good you start wading smaller streams, you kind of run into some legally gray areas. What's it look like there in Georgia as far as like anglers, like rights to access different water? Yeah, that's a great question. Our legislature is debating that even this session. So uh, they had some big committee hearings on that. And so I don't want to get out in front of them. But uh, what you described is kind of the present state of our of our um, access, public, public rights uh, you know, we have so much public uh, land in North Georgia on the Chattahoochee National Forest. There's no reason to really venture on the private land and risk that trespass. So I just recommend that folks exercise that you know, right to respect private property and uh, don't go on there without permission and target your efforts on the Chattahoochee National Forest or some of the state-owned properties that are managed by DNR. So. Well, Mr. Rabin, that you've been just a wealth of information. I really appreciate you donating all of your time here to the show. Tell our listeners one more time. I know you've mentioned several good resources. If people want to plan a trip this spring once it starts warming up and they want to go try that fishery out and submit for the slam, uh, what's, what's some good resources for them to check out? Uh, good. I'm glad you asked that because really everything that folks need to know is on our trout fishing page. Uh, so go to georgiawildlife.com and you'll see a fishing uh, link and then click on that tab. It'll bring you into the trout fishing page. So everything that we've talked about is on that trout fishing page. You know, our regulations, our trout stream map. Uh, so you can find some of these spots that you're looking for. Application to the trout slam. I mean, it's just full of information. Our trout stock and list, all that's on that trout fishing page at georgiawildlife.com. And then I mentioned uh, Raven TU. Org. It's a great website if you're interested in flinging some flies up in the mountain streams and want to know what to use. Uh, they've got a match the hatch chart in some of their newsletters, and so you want to explore that and 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 know what's uh, what the locals are recommending for that time of year. Yep. So those are two sources that I know can steer uh, your audience in a good direction. Awesome. Well, guys, y'all definitely go check it out. Uh, I may run into you this year. If y'all get out there on the waters, I'm going to be hitting it as hard as I can this year to try to knock out the red-eye bass slam and the trout slam and the Georgia black bass slam. So I got a lot of fishing ahead of me. So I'm, I'm going to see if I can't tie it into work and tie it back into the podcast because that's that's the secret to skillful living right there is, is to there tie you in your recreation with your work. Mr. Rayburn, I, I definitely appreciate you being on the show, and uh, thanks for everything that you do for both the Georgia natives and for the people like me who are coming from out of state to check out the resource. Y'all do a real good job yeah. keeping all that together and managing it, and we just want to say thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Allow me to plug uh, the Georgia Trout Slam. Absolutely. You have a good rest of your day. All right. Thanks a lot. This week's episode has been brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks offer numerous items to help get your project done right the first time. They carry a variety of different panel profiles in your choice of colors and gauges with all the matching trim and accessories. They also offer a full line of hardware items and post-frame building design. Their friendly and knowledgeable sales representatives are always willing to help answer any questions or concerns you may have. Contact them with any questions or to get a free estimate today. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. Also brought to you by... 
the Alabama Fishing Show. The all-new Alabama Fishing Show, sponsored by Monster Marine, is coming to Gadsden, Alabama at the venue at Coosa Landing on George Wallace Drive, March 8th through the 10th. The only true fishing show in Alabama, featuring all things fresh and saltwater fishing. If you fish, don't miss the latest fishing gear, equipment, and apparel. Custom tackle, lures, rods and reels, electronics, and guides. March 8th through the 10th. $12 for adults, $8 for kids. Kids 5 and under are free. Tickets are available online or at the door. We've got free parking. Learn more at alabamafishingshow.com. Hope to see you there. Don't miss the Kids Fishing Tournament on Saturday, ages 4 through 12. Don't miss the event, March 8th through the 10th. All righty, guys. Welcome back to the show today. We're sitting down here with Norm Latona up at Southeastern Pond Management. Norm, how you doing today, sir? Doing good. Doing good, Nick. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Y'all, uh... Having a good holiday season so far? We are. You know, we kind of slow down just a little bit in December and January. Uh, and so it's kind of a welcome respite, I guess. Uh, so, yep, doing a little little hunting, a little duck hunting, a little deer hunting, and enjoying the cooler weather. There we go. I, I know that, uh, you know, in the fishing world, I know that it kind of gets a little bit slow unless you're one of the crappie guys. Most people are either hunting or hanging out with their families or uh they're they're kind of getting ready to kind of do you know the the next year's projects you know they're sitting there implementing the plans for next year they're shopping for that bigger boat uh they're shopping for that addition to their pond whatever it may be and something i want to talk with you about today is pond fountains and and pond aeration systems I've seen a lot of them. I'm not super familiar with them. I know every little pond that they've thrown up here in Baldwin County, Alabama, when they build their little cookie cutter neighborhoods, I know they got a little pond in them. But I, I can't, I couldn't tell you the difference between one that's in there for aesthetics versus one that's in there for function. So, so kind of walk me through that and starting out, you know, why, why do people install pond fountains? What, what are they kind of shooting for when they do that? Yeah, those are all, those are all good questions. And, um, the truth of the matter is, uh, in most cases, uh, we tell folks that, that, you know, if you want to install a fountain, do it because for the aesthetic effect. Uh, fountains, uh, you know, and, and I, they are just by definition, they are, they're decorative water displays. They are uh, designed typically to move a very small volume of water, very small amount of water a great distance to put on a show you know they might take a a, a small stream of water and shoot it up 15 20 feet in the air or maybe put it through a nozzle that breaks it up into 20 or 30 little spouts up in the air but all things considered relative to the volume of a lake even a small lake it's a very small amount of water they're moving a few gallons a minute you know maybe even a hundred gallons a minute but it's not enough water to really make a difference in terms of aeration uh, in the summertime, particularly when lakes stratify and get really hot. Um, you're just not moving a, a great enough volume of water. There's nothing in the world wrong with them, but a lot of folks have the misconception that they can put a fountain, a decorative fountain in their pond, and it, it'll take care of, of oxygenating the water. And that's just simply not the case. Um, there are, uh, there are, uh, there is equipment that is very efficient at doing that in terms of aeration, what we would, what we would call a true aerator, <clears throat> but just to give you an idea, Nick, a, a fountain, let's say a quarter of a horsepower would be a, a would be a, a decent sized fountain to, to put in a pond and yeah, you could throw a lot of water up in the air and put lights around it and make it look beautiful. It takes about one horsepower per surface acre on, on average to aerate, to, to really replace or provide enough oxygen uh, in, in cases where that there's a need for that. It takes an average of about an acre, a horsepower per acre. So if you got a 10 acre lake, you need 10 horsepower worth of aerator, which is a lot of machine, can be really expensive to operate, certainly expensive to purchase. Uh, so typically, aerators are reserved for commercial type operations. A true aerator 
like the folks over in West Alabama that are growing catfish, we've got a production facility over in West Alabama. We grow shad and bluegill and, and we're really trying to maximize growth because it's a commercial operation. And we've got several thousand pounds of fish per acre. You know, the average pond may have 350 pounds of fish per acre. But you get over into catfish production, they may have eight or 10,000 pounds of fish per acre. So they really have to have true aeration and they spend lots and lots of money on it. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, those, that equipment is available, to, but it's typically not designed for your, your average recreational pond. Um, fountains, on the other hand, not only do they provide a pretty display, but they can be effective at things like keeping the surface tension of the water broken up, especially in the summertime when it gets real still and, and you get pollen and, and kind of a scum on the surface. You know, if you can do something just to break up that surface tension of the water, it, it makes the water look prettier. So that's kind of what they're designed to do uh, is, is make, the, make the place look pretty. And and I think that's there's definitely some advantage to that. I think most people want a pond that uh, people have them for different reasons. People want to fish them. Some people, you know, value the aesthetics of them. And I, I know I've seen some ponds that uh, down here they they can go stagnant pretty quick, like you were talking about when they get that sure. kind of pollen on them and stuff like that. What if 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 you are going with a pond fountain? If if folks are listening in and they're saying, "Well, yeah, I think I think that's mainly what I need is a fountain. I'm not looking at raising you know hundreds of thousands of pounds of catfish in my pond." How how do you go about getting the right size fountain? Because I've I've seen a few that were funny both ways. I've I've seen really small fountains in real big ponds, and I've seen some really small ponds that you could tell somebody had a a budget and uh. And they just spent the whole budget of contractor, you know, maxing out his budget or something. And it looked like you had a 50 foot pond shooting water, a hundred foot up in there. Yeah. Oh yeah. What, what, yeah. Uh, as far as sizing it, it's really personal preference. I mean, aside from the extremes, like what you're talking about, you know, you get this great big old lake and you get this tiny little bubbler out in the middle that you can barely see from the shoreline or, or, or the opposite extreme that you just described other than that, it's, it's really personal preference. I mean, it, it's it's not, like I said earlier, they're not designed to affect the, the, the oxygen level, the dissolved oxygen content of the water. It's just a visual effect. So we've had folks that live in neighborhoods that put fountains, uh, you know, in a central spot, maybe where the community gathers for parties or or whatever i mean we we we've got folks that 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 put them in their in their ponds in their front yard and put lights on them you know they're 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 really pretty at night and but it's just personal preference um generally when we when we talk with folks about fountains we try to talk to them in terms of you know how far away are you going to are you going to be from this thing when you're looking at it you know, are you going to be 100 feet away? Are you going to be 300 feet away? I mean, obviously, if you got something that's 300 feet out in the water, uh, it's going to need to be a lot bigger than if it's 50 feet out in the water for you to see it and enjoy it. You know, we we talked to him about how high do you want it to come up off the water? Do you want height? Do you want width? I mean, you can, you can uh, uh, control that to a large degree with just the, the nozzle type and Really what it comes down to a lot of times with fountains as far as cost is the distance uh, from the power source and the distance out into the water. Because as you can imagine, you know, these things are electric, you know, they're electrical running. So you got to have uh, heavy duty insulated wiring, however far out in the water they are, that stuff, that, that cable's got to run. And so that stuff gets expensive. And uh, obviously, the larger the motor, the larger the fountain, the heavier the cost. Um, so we just kind of talk to them just like you would, you know, when you're making a decision about purchasing anything. I mean, the pros and cons and, and what you get for your money and, and what, you, what your intended use is going to be and kind of figure it out from there. <clears throat> we do, Nick, uh, install instead of fountains or aerators. Uh, which we, we 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 install a lot of fountains and lakes again primarily for aesthetics 
nothing in the world wrong with that. We install very few aerators, true aeration systems in recreational ponds. Uh, what we do in cases where folks want to add a an insurance policy for 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 lack of a, a better way to describe it to to kind of help ensure that they that they're not going to have oxygen problems in their pond is um, we install what we call destratification systems, uh, which is different than an aerator. <clears throat> Sometimes they get folks get confused about the difference, but a destratification system is located on the bottom of the pond. <clears throat> and basically all it is is a, a high volume, <clears throat> low pressure compressor that's mounted on the on the shoreline somewhere. And it produces air that's that travels out to these air stones that are strategically located in various spots on the bottom of the lake. And it it generates millions and millions and tens of millions of tiny little bubbles that come up from these air stones, kind of like a, a giant air stone in an aquarium. And the, the purpose of these stones, these bubbles, is not to uh, oxygenate the water as much as it is to move the water. And so what we do by moving water with air, we can move tremendous volumes of water a very short distance. Remember, I said fountains are designed to move a very small amount of water a great distance. Well, destratification systems are designed just the opposite. They're designed to move massive volumes of water a very short distance. But what it does is it creates an underwater upwell current. And so in the summertime, when these ponds stratify thermally and chemically, you know what I'm talking about when you jump in a pond and the water up around your chest is bath water and down at your toes, it's chilly. Well, that's stratification and that's temperature stratification, but the pond also stratifies chemically, meaning that there's not as much near as much oxygen down in that cooler, deeper water than there is at the surface. And so what we do by when we install these destratification systems is we mix the water all we, we homogenize it. We make the water at the surface the same temperature, relatively speaking, as the, temp as the water at the bottom. And likewise, the oxygen content of the water at the bottom is close to the same as the water at the top. So we're dramatically increasing the amount of oxygen in the overall pond. So we do install quite a few of those, and they're very specific to a lake or pond. Um, it's a custom kind of design. It's based on the depth profile of the lake, the surface area of the lake. And, and you know, we come out and take a bunch of measurements and basically design a system that's that's suitable for, for that for that particular body of water. So you basically you would say aesthetics, go ahead and, and put your pond fountain in. Uh, if you're looking to do some heavy duty fish farming operations, put aeration system in, and then for your average guy looking to kind of safeguard against, you know, a low oxygen kill, probably a, a destratification system. That's absolutely hit the nail on the head. That's the perfect way to describe it. Exactly. What What are you looking at for, for people who are installing either a pond fountain or a destratification system? What does that usually look like if you're running power to that thing? I know it's more involved, like you said, than just, you know, taking an extension cable from the Home Depot and running it out there into your pond. But is that a service that y'all provide as well? Yeah, we, well, we, we, we have to, we'll bring in electricians. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a significant effort and it's one that, you know, they're obviously safety and, you know, concerns and so you know we would we would always whether you do it yourself or have us to come in certainly recommend using a certified electrician everything you know on ground fault and you know obviously you're putting a lot of electricity running it through the water you don't want any any chance of of, uh, of it leaking and you know causing a hazard and so and and frankly that can be for for fountains, especially for larger fountains, 
uh, you know, multi-horsepower, big-time stuff, um, that can be a significant cost. I mean, it can be uh, it can be the the majority of the cost in some cases if you've got to run electricity a great distance. That's another advantage, a huge advantage to using a destratification system is we don't put any electricity in the water. So the electricity stops at the compressor that's bank mounted. The only thing that goes in the water is is poly tubing that runs along the bottom of the lake and air, you know, so so there's really there's no electricity out in the water and you just you can carry that air you know, 100 feet or you can carry it 500 feet. It's just the cost. The cost difference is just the cost of the tubing uh, that you run along the bottom. So quite a different endeavor altogether. Uh, likewise, with a an aeration system, you typically, again, have electricity in the water, running through the water in heavy, heavy insulated uh, wiring. Yeah, I can. Uh, so I, I imagine that's, uh, would it be safe to, to guess all those ponds that you see that run for a little bit and then they quit running is that is that going to be a, a wiring issue there either something happened with that electric motor there in that pond or, or something happened with the wiring yeah, almost always i mean it's uh they're designed i mean they have safety features in them i mean anytime there's any sort of breach in in, in that watertight barrier it's going to short short the thing out and it's not going to run until you uh repair it and you know then you start looking at doing underwater splices and things of that nature. And, you know, it, it, it can, it again, can be costly. Um, I will say if you have a fountain installed properly from the start, um, there's no reason in the world, you know, you shouldn't get years and years of service out of it, both in terms of the motor, the, the kind of warranties that, that the companies we deal with provide and, you know, labor warranties on labor. And when they're, when, you know, there's a proper way to do it. There's no shortcutting it. Underwater electricity is expensive. There's just no way around it. It's just how it is. And, uh, you know, heavy gauge wire, copper wire is expensive. But if you do install one properly, um, you should get many, many years of, of use out of it if it's if it's done right. Uh, and we we see plenty of them that are not. So, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of spend the money on the front end or, you know, have a problem that you're going to have to deal with um, long-term, your choice. For sure. Yeah. It sounds a lot more involved than what I would have initially intuited. Uh, Norm, I know Southeastern Pond, y'all been in business since I think, what, 1989? It's been, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been a while that y'all, y'all been doing it. So if if folks are looking to learn more, if they're looking at putting in a fountain, a destratification system, an aerator, and then they're looking for some help with that, where's a good place to get in contact with you? You know, you can always call me directly. I'm happy to share my my mobile number. It's 205-288-1371. Uh, otherwise, uh, you can look us up on the web, sepond.com, sepond.com. And uh, put in an inquiry, and we'll uh, follow up and get get back to get back to folks as quickly as we can. Well, there we go, folks. If y'all are looking to uh, make an improvement to your pond this year, y'all definitely go check out Norm over at Southeastern Pond Management. Uh, Norm, pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you, Nick. Enjoyed it. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And again, don't forget to text that code ALFFR to 779-345-2918. Get you that free AFCO Sun Protection Mask promo code and get added to our email list so that we can send you the new show each week. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Killer Dot. KillerDock combines durability, function, and design to uniquely upgrade your entire dock experience. Visit KillerDock.com to see more. And brought to you by Southeastern Pond Management. Since 1989, Southeastern Pond Management has been a leader in pond and lake management services. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call 1-888-830-POND or info at sepond.com. Also by LM Marine. LM Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoons to bigger bay and hybrid boats for the hardcore angler. 
You can visit them at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama, or give them a call at 251-937-1380. Also brought to you by Fish Bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. <laughs> 